Welcome to Greenish, where wellness meets girl boss, empowering you to live your daydream. Join me, Ari, and me, Kate, as we seek the realness from the most admirable entrepreneurs. We'll get the inside scoop about the habits that inspire them, the mission that drives them, and reflection on their roots. Let's get greenish and talk about what money and kale have in common. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Greenish. We are so excited because today we are joined by the Jacqueline Johnson, the founder of Create and Cultivate, New Money Ventures, and May Wines. Have you ever wondered what it's like to start the ultimate girl boss conference with every speaker from Jessica Alba to Lauren Conrad, successfully exit two companies and start a venture fund that invests solely in female and underrepresented founders? Jacqueline is literally the definition of a powerhouse. She was named Forbes 30 Under 30, an Adweek distributor, and profiled in Fast Company, the LA Times, and The Entrepreneur. She is at the forefront of female entrepreneurialism, empowerment, and workplace equality. I think it's safe to say Jacqueline is our ultimate girl crush. We are so excited to speak with Jacqueline today about adaptability, how to balance over-delivering, and why the future is female. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Yay, I'm excited to be here. So Jacqueline, in the greenish spirit, we like to start with your roots, your background, your childhood. What did this look like for you? Yeah. So I grew up in Florida, um, which is so random because it's definitely not where I ended up. But um, I grew up in a family of small business owners. So my mom and dad actually own a company together um, and had worked together my entire life and still do. Um, And my sister, I have an older sister who is now an entrepreneur and small business owner. So I always joke like entrepreneurship was in the blood and in the sense that my parents were constantly working all the time at home in the office, et cetera. And like after school, my sister and I would go to my mom's office and we'd like stuff envelopes, organize receipts and like, you know, help her with things, you know, back in the day um, that would help with their business. So we grew up around, you know, kind of seeing what running a business, launching a business, managing people, what that all sort of looks like um, on the back end. And honestly, thought I would never be an entrepreneur. I, you know, definitely. Really? Went, yes, I definitely was like, I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. I was like on the corporate track. I went to school in New York. Um, I went to NYU and like was making it in corporate America. Like that was really what I was doing was really successful early on. And then it all sort of culminates in me being transferred to Los Angeles, the company I worked for, and then being laid off. And then that's kind of how I started my entrepreneurial journey. But it was definitely not like I set out to be a business owner. Well, okay. So for all of our listeners, we want to do a quick little rapid fire overview of your life because you've done a lot very impressively. Oh, thanks. Yeah, let's do it. So you started at Condé Nast. And then you were the director of social media marketing at IAC. You worked for City Search iCrossing. You started a blog called Some Notes on Napkins. At 28, you sold your first company, No Subject. You then served as president of the creative services vertical within Small Girls PR. Two years later, you started your second venture, Create and Cultivate, which is an absolute powerhouse, and we'll dive into this more later. You then wrote your best-selling book, Work Party, and also have an amazing podcast. And today, you're an investor through your VC fund, New Money Ventures, and you've inspired millions of women to start living their daydream. Jacqueline, it's safe to say you're definitely our girl crush, but is there anything we missed? Um, I mean, no. I feel like you guys know more about me than I know about you. I love it. Okay, so, so now we would love to dig deeper. And because most of our listenership is primarily in their 20s or is still figuring out what the heck they're doing, we're going to primarily dig into how you seamlessly transitioned from one role to another. And just general advice for our age group. You were never afraid to take risks. One of your first jobs you got from applying to none other than a Craigslist ad that literally mentioned, do you like fashion and media? And you had no idea what you wanted to do in college. For our listeners, let this be another reminder that this is totally okay. You will end up okay. I mean, Kate, have you kept the same major and minors throughout college? I have 
because, no! I studied business, because I studied business, but when I came in, I didn't want to study business. So I like grew, my mindset has changed. The major hasn't changed, but like I grew onto it. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I definitely changed my major a few times. I took way too many classes that didn't really even count towards anything and just dipped my toe into as many different paths as I possibly could. And one of my entrepreneurship professors said something that I loved. And he said, life is too short not to live your daydream. So, of course, I can hop on this podcast and encourage this, but I'm curious, Jacqueline, what is your advice to all the 20-somethings who are listening, who are really focused on figuring out what the right path is for them? Yeah. I mean, I love what you said about trying a bunch of different things. I tried a bunch of different things. I you know, thought I wanted to be a magazine editor. I was studying magazine production. I interned at like all the best magazines. And what I realized was when I got into the magazine world... Um, I always assumed that the editorial team, the people writing the articles and fighting the content were like running the magazine because that's what every movie makes it seem like. And then I got to the office and realized there was a ton of like over 30 people in desks. And I was like, well, what are their jobs? And they're like, that's the sales team. And I realized like actually the ads run the magazines. Like the sales team is like the like, you know, blood of the magazine. They make sure everything happens through the ad revenue. And then the editors are just like two people who typically are supporting the advertisers, not necessarily going out and finding the coolest trends or whatever, like maybe occasionally doing that. So it was sort of a wake up call for me in that like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was, but I'm still interested in learning about marketing and marketing, you know, out the magazine and the sales side was interesting to me. And like, it was just interesting to see how sort of the sausage was made as it were. So that was interesting to me, but I knew I wanted to get out of media and into the internet and see kind of where, you know, this was going. Cause this was again, not to age myself, but like, this was a long time ago when People were just figuring out how to be a brand online, how to be, you know, quote unquote, an influencer, um, you know, what social media was, how we were going to use it, you know, for marketing. So I was lucky in that I was really first to this kind of beginning stages of what was going on. And I had a lot of, you know, internships, experiences. And then I did actually an apprenticeship at Time Magazine through a professor of mine who was like, there's this like kind of weird hybrid program, like you will get paid, but you're not an employee. But you basically are kind of going into this brainstorm group of like trying to figure out how to turn Time Inc. publications into online media sites. And again, I sound 150 years old. Like this, like basically <laughs> back in the day, people were just copy pasting exactly what was on the magazine onto a website versus oh. thinking what the website experience was. Should we have different content. It was like, everyone was just trying to figure it out. So I got into this sort of like internet think tank early on and had a lot of like interesting conversations and learnings from that. And then went on to go to this Craigslist job where basically it was just these two guys who had an ad agency, um, who were trying to kind of figure out what to do about the internet and advertising. And they were really smart, really scrappy startup owners. Um, and the reason I got an interview and essentially was hired was they had won a client called Bluefly. And I don't know if you guys know what Bluefly is, but Bluefly was like a really big deal back in the day. It was sort of like um, a discount net-a-porter. It was, it was selling designer goods for, you know, kind of cheap, like in the same thing as Guilt Group, Bluefly, like they were all one of the same, but it was very, very popular. And they had won this account and they were like, you know, nothing about fashion. So we need someone to come in and kind of help us talk about how to get young women to be shopping on Bluefly. So um, I got very lucky and kind of stumbled into that role, which was ended up being a role of a lifetime because I learned about starting a business, running a business, hiring people, um, building out service lines, how to price things. Like I was in there with these guys as they were literally building their business and they had 20 plus years experience. So um, I was sort of a fly on the wall of, you know, a how to create an ad agency. Well, and I think it's kind of funny because you telling that story, it doesn't sound like they would have been successful without you. I mean, I like to think so, but no. They were not the target market. Like they didn't, they weren't in, you know what I mean? And one of the lessons I learned from them, and I actually think that they were so good at was they were really good at hiring. Um, I ended up actually like bringing on two of my friends, um, one of which we were just chatting about, but like 
I ended up hiring two of my best friends. We were all super young, like out of college, but they knew that we were native to the internet in a way that they weren't and that we would be able to come up with fresh ideas and move faster than if they hired someone with more experience than us. And we were probably cheaper, but I think (laughs) end of the day, like they had a good knack for spotting talent because everyone who came out of that ad agency has been successful, either either become a successful founder or gone on to do amazing things. So I think they had a really good eye, which is absolutely a talent. That's so cool. And I think you spoke to how many different experiences you've had. And Ari and I have definitely seen that through internships. And I think that sometimes when you're in a role and it's not like what you thought it was going to be, it's kind of like the like all the glitters isn't gold saying. And it's kind of like a big sigh because you're like, like, here's another one. Like, I'm not that passionate about it. But I think like what you're saying, like, it's so invaluable to try on different hats. And then like being an entrepreneur, looking back, I'm sure you're like every single thing played a role into that, even if I wasn't passionate about what I was doing at the time. Absolutely. Now we want to dive into the big stuff. So for all of our listeners, Create and Cultivate is a modern media company that provides content, community, and events for ambitious women, both in person and thanks to COVID in the digital space as well. You guys are all about creating community, which in entrepreneurship, I think is probably the most important resource. Um, I mean, that's why we started Greenish. So how did Create and Cultivate come to you? Was it a light bulb or was it kind of a Harry Potter moment where you sat down with a pen and a napkin and just figured it all out? Oh man, no. It was it, Create and Cultivate was really born out of my own personal experiences. So I um, had started my first company, No Subject, which you guys had chatted about earlier. And in launching that company, I really got a masterclass in running a business. I um, previously had been in giant corporate companies where your expenses were handled and like, you know, you just got your paycheck every two weeks and you had benefits and like, you never really questioned where any of these things came from. And like, you just did your job. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden it was like, I'm writing the paychecks, I'm running the company, I'm sales, I'm HR, I'm everything. Um, and so it was truly a a masterclass in like, lots of mistakes and learnings of how to be a business owner. Um, And I had a business partner at that uh, company when I first started it. We ended up having a breakup, which was really devastating, both personally and professionally, especially being in my 20s. You know, obviously your friendships and your business life are so intertwined. It was really challenging to get over that. Um, And I felt like I didn't really have anyone I could turn to when I was going through that. Um, And so I decided to kind of start telling my story to other women and like, found out like this happens a lot. And like, this was happening to a lot of people and a lot of people were struggling with like running their businesses and no one was talking about it. Everyone was just kind of smiling and saying everything was fine, but everyone was struggling to find good accountants and good talent and good office space. And no one was really having these conversations. So I decided to create this event, um, called Create and Cultivate, which was hosted at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs, the first one in 2011. And basically it was... Yeah, it's amazing. And so <laughs> basically came up with this concept of like, okay, how do, what do we create for? And we at the time we're saying like freelancers and creatives. Um, because women, I feel like back in 2011 weren't really even calling ourselves entrepreneurs, which is crazy. Um, and so we ended up putting together this event where it was a combination of panel conversations, DIYs, dinners, networking, etc. I, you know, posted it on the internet. And I think about like 25, 30 people came, most of which I knew in some way, shape or form. Um, And it was so fun. And I just thought that was going to be it. It was going to be one event and one and done. And basically what ended up happening was um, Instagram was just starting out. And so we created this beautiful experience. You know, everyone was posting and tagging about it and everyone started to reach out to me. Hey, when's the next one? Are you doing it again? How can our brand get involved? And I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. Like, uh, they- let me go figure that out. I have no idea. Back to you. Yeah, like it was not a business at all. In fact, it like lost money for many years. And I just kind of kept doing it like once a year. And then it got to like 50 people and a hundred people. Um, and then basically it just started to kind of take over the agency, um, where brands were really interested in working with us, maybe on the no subject side, or they were like, How do we work with Create and Cultivate? And so I was like, okay, like our agency can like launch the event and like help with the the services and like the team can work on it. But it was like, everything was kind of meshed together, but it still wasn't what I was considering a business. It was sort of the way I was thinking about it. It was like a lead gen for my agency. 
And then basically around 2015, um, the event kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think our, at that point, it was maybe like 200 people. Um, and a woman reached out to me that I knew. Um, she was a mentor and a friend um, and had I had worked with her previously as a content creator. And she had run a influencer agency, which now there's like a billion. But at the time, she was the only one. And she was like, what is this thing you're doing? And I was like, oh, it's just like this little side project. Like it doesn't make any money. And she was like, I think there's something there. And I think this could be a real business. Like, let's do it together. And I was like, oh no, like I already have this other business. Like, I don't even know how I would like do that. And like, and she was like, no, I'm telling you, like, you are right right now you're doing advertising, marketing and PR for other brands. Like, why not do it for your own brand? And like, own the own the brand and the ideas and all these things. And it just like to me, it was like a scary leap. Like I wasn't sure. I really I was like, I understand the agency side of the business. That's a real company, like has real employees, like real clients, real money. And this is like a big question mark. Um, and so we decided to do a test. Um, so we did this sort of like JV agreement where we did a test and said, let's like put a little money into it. So I put in some of my money, she put in some of her money and we kind of went big on the next event. So we're like, let's get a big event space. Let's get bigger talent. Let's like see what happens. Um, and the event was extremely successful. I think we had over 350 people. We had like Julianne Huff and Emily Weiss and, you know, Whitney Port and like big names come and speak. Insane. So insane. the event itself was like a true disaster from my perspective. Like we ran out of water, like no one was manning the gift bags. People started taking a million gift. It was just like little things like that. that now I'm, I obviously would think about, but I, I was just my first time throwing a big event, but it was really successful. And then from there, it just took on a life of its own. And so we doubled down, created the company together and made it official, split up the two businesses and kind of went from there. Wow. I'm curious when, did it all like really sink in for you? Was it when like you had Olivia Colpo speak or maybe Jessica Alba or when you partnered with MasterCard? I feel like it's weird because it sometimes feels like it hasn't even sunk in. Like it's weird because I think like when you're running a company like that and also you're a small team and self-funded, like you're just in go mode. Like there was moments where I couldn't even believe what was happening. <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> this person, like what is going on? Um, and I think for me, like, you know, what I think the most thing that resonated with me is like, everyone's there to see the celebrities, like and the influencers and the entrepreneurs. And it's amazing. But when I went on my book tour for work party and it was like, just me, you know, doing my book tour and like hundreds of hundreds of women like showed up and like, were telling me their stories and how the book related to them. And, you know, I think that for me was when it really started to sink in that, you know, the things you're doing have an impact, like the way you present yourself in the world, like affects someone. And I think I always tell people like with that position, being the CEO of Create and Cultivate, like I would get cards in the mail, like that are like, I met my business partner at your event, or I went in and asked for a raise. And it's like, in what other job can, do you get that kind of feedback? And, you know, I just felt really grateful to, you know, have that responsibility in many ways, but also be able to provide, you know, access to women to have you know, opportunities to meet other women or ask those questions or learn more about their businesses. So it's been really fun. Yeah. And you created Create and Cultivate, like you said, when this kind of like communication, transparency, like that wasn't available. And in any relationship, communication is so important. I mean, Ari, would you agree? Oh my gosh. Yes. I think, I feel like communication can not just make or break a company, but like it can make or break ideas, you know, like with business partners, investors, friends, or family, like if you can't communicate, it's just, it's never going to work. I totally agree. And Jacqueline, so you've spoken about the importance of finding a business partner, complementary skill set, kind of creating more a, a dynamic company or partnership through that. And you also mentioned that you went through a bad business breakup two years into the business and you thought it was the end of the world. I would too. Um, And then you said you spoke to other people. You realized that it was a common theme, but at that moment, without this transparency, like you thought that you were the only person that had experienced this. How did you recover? Like what was your perspective, your next steps? How did you think through that? For sure. So it was really devastating because I think 
two things that happened. Like one was there was an issue with money and financials, which is what sparked this uh, breakup. And so I always, you know, we never had those difficult conversations up front about how much money we wanted to be making, how we would spend money through the company, what that could look like. And in retrospect, like, you know, we should have had those conversations and been more transparent. I think it was just a symptom of being new business owners and entrepreneurs and new friends, frankly, and like trying to figure out how to navigate those tricky conversations. So like that's first and foremost, but two, it was also hard because there was a lot of friendship intermingled. There was a lot of like um, you know, obviously reliance on each other. So I really weighed heavily, like, do I keep forging forward or do I just go get a job? You know, I really didn't even know if I wanted to keep the company. And what ended up happening was I, one of my friends was the um, head of marketing at Nike. And I was like, I'm just going to go work for Nike. And so I emailed him and I was like, Hey, that's a really good friend to have. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's great. And um, and I was like, hey, listen, like, I don't know if you're hiring, but like, I would crush it. I'd be an amazing like director of marketing at Nike. Da, da, da. And he's like, don't you have your own company? And I was like, yeah, but like, I don't know. This is like what happened. I don't know. I'm going back and forth. Like, do I want to do it on my own? And he was like, let me ask you a question. And I was like, yes. And he's like, does your company make money? And I said, yes. And he's like, then don't stop working for yourself. Like, if you're in a lurch and you're like not making money or the company's not doing well, sure, like let's have this conversation. But like you have a company and you're doing it yourself and like you have a name and notoriety and like keep going, like keep, keep trying. So um I did. I took that advice and I kept going. And it was a whole new world because basically at that point I um, was running the team on my own. I had to like, you know, obviously tell all of our clients what was going on. So it was a really painful period, but it was a massive growing period for me as well. And going into this next business partnership, I had my eyes wide open into what to have in an agreement, how to structure a partner, what kind of partner I would work really well with, um, you know, how to sort of think about what this would look like now, but also what it would look like five years from now. So some of those questions that I just didn't know to ask in those early days of building a business. Definitely. I, I totally can understand that. And I think this connects really well to just like your story overall and the concept of adaptability. Um, you know, when the pandemic began, I remember that South by Southwest was canceled and that was huge for you guys. Um, you guys had to pivot so fast. Like it was all in person before that was canceled. It had to be digital. My dad has always talked about the importance of the concepts adapt, improvise, overcome. And I think you can see that thread throughout life, but especially for something like this. So could you talk about the concept of adaptability and like, what did you learn about that, especially during that period? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I am a planner. I love to have structures and spreadsheets and, and things organized. And when you're running massive events, you have to be so on top of things, but you also have to be very much planned in advance to make sure like obviously everything's booked and handled and all those things. So we were coming up on like our biggest year yet. Like we had, you know, had our best Q1 and we were like rolling right into to South by Southwest where we had, you know, millions of dollars in sponsorship, 9,000 RCPs to our event. Um, and, you know, we were hearing the news and listening and kind of, you know, we all were in that state of like, what's about to happen. And then when South by, um, well, not even South by the, the government of Austin, the world. <laughs> the world basically pulled the plug on the event. Um, it was really scary. And I remember getting in the board, like our boardroom with all of our employees and basically being like, we have to unpack like six months of work um, and start to uh, like basically market message, get back to all of our clients and try and pivot and position everyone, all those dollars that we've been counting on to other events and other things. And at that point, you know, um, we weren't, we were all like two weeks to flatten the curve. <laughs> I was like, great. And after those, you know, we were basically like in triage mode of like, okay, South by is no longer and we had Coachella lined up. We are, we proactively were like, no on Coachella. Let's just focus on end of year. And like, that's what we'll focus on. And then basically end of March or mid April, it became very clear that that was probably not going to happen as well. And I, I always, I liken it to adrenaline because I was just like, what are we going to do? And we also had all of these sponsors who thankfully were like, we're not going to shift our spend with you, but like, 
you know, what can we do with you? And so we just like put our thinking caps on and I was like, online events, let's get like going on this. Let's start creating lives. Let's start like launching more, um, around our product lines. Let's get the podcast ramped up. Like let's move on everything we already have access to. Um, cause we were lucky that we were, di- we were diversified, um, but not nearly as much as we were needed to be f- to survive this. So, um, we moved very fast and I have to credit like the team at the time was so amazing because everyone jumped in on roles that they didn't know how to do. Like our set designer was building websites and our event producer was a zoom editor and like everyone was doing everything and just jumping in and, we were lucky that we were able to get up our first event top of May money moves. We had over 10,000 people tune in from 50 different countries. It was hugely successful and we found the formula. And basically after that, you know, we got a ton of press around it and we're able to leverage that early, you know, to your point, adaptability, improvisation, moving forward um, kind of thing into um, a really profitable, what ended up being a really profitable year for us. Um, But it was shaky. It was the hardest year as an entrepreneur, I can't even imagine. I mean, there's so many other people I know that launched businesses March, 2020. And like, it's just, it was such a challenging year. And I think like, you know, that combination of, um, tenacity and, uh, resilience was so important. Um, but it was challenging for sure. And that is a testament also to the way that you just show up and you've said, I'm in the business of over delivering. Even our gift bag is enough to make your day. I love a good gift bag and I'm obsessed with that statement. I think so much of success is going the extra mile and being thoughtful, like what isn't being done or what can I do better? Over delivering also is probably one of the best characteristics of an entrepreneur. But how do you know when to stop? Like, how do you know when to stop delivering when you set your own schedule and knowing when to put the computer down and turn on the bubble bath and like take a deep breath? Because I'm sure it can be super overwhelming. Yeah, I think it's a very um, personal threshold. Um, I know for me personally, like there was probably three to four years where I just worked all the time, like truly working all the time, but I enjoyed it. Like I didn't feel burnt out. I felt like excited about what was next. Like, was I taking care of myself in every possible way? No. Like, was I working out? Definitely not. Like, and, and, you know, my husband's always like, we weren't hanging out ever. Like you were always traveling. And I think there's definitely just moments in time where certain things prioritize over other things. Um, but I also, you know, had a lot of employees that burnt out. I had friends that were burning out. And I think it's because, you know, a lot of times it really is that personal bandwidth and that personal, um, ability to know when you're at your max. And I have a pretty good receptor of when I'm at my max. And I know when I need to like lay in bed all day, watch Netflix, order food, like chill and like recover, Um, And I'm always good at like being able to like understand when that is. And I think it changes over time too. It changes like where you're at in your life and your career and all these different things. But um, I think, you know, there is a lot to being successful that requires a lot of hustle and a lot of grit and a lot of long nights. It's just par for the course of like building something really great. But I think at the end of the day, it's your personal preference of how you want to set your life and business up. So going off of that question, I'm going to ask something kind of similar to that. So we are kind of in that 20 somethings um, age group where we're in this period of our lives where we get to be selfish. So how do you balance over delivering while simultaneously trying everything you could possibly want to do or experience? Because it's definitely a delicate balance. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the twenties is like, here's what I'll say. The twenties is the most exciting time of your life. And I also think like, I wish I spent more time. I mean, I guess I did a a decent job at this, but like what's more important than over delivering at your job, I would say in your twenties is networking amongst your peers. Um, because I think like what you'll realize and like something that I didn't realize coming out of college that I wish I had known more was your network is your net worth. And that is so accurate. Who you know and where you end up is so integral to your success. Um, And I think it has to be an even weight of like, 
when you're doing your own thing, you always want to over-deliver. When you're the boss and you own 100% of it or a large portion of it, I think over-delivering comes with that territory. But if you're working for someone else, like you want to do a great job, but you also want to be over-delivering for yourself, right? And your your life experience. So whether that's time with your friends or networking or you know being cognizant of what your bigger picture is, I think focusing on that is important. So I think when it comes to you know, kind of figuring out that over delivering, like I worked thousand hour weeks and like all crazy things for other people for a long time. And I don't regret it because I, I learned a lot, but there was definitely nights where I didn't have to be there. You know, I think like, especially like the culture that I was in, in that time period was whoever stays the latest is the best. So it was like, everyone was just like sitting there, like doing nothing <laughs> Like in retrospect. You're like, that was the dumbest thing ever. Like everyone's done with their work. Like, why are we still here? Um, and I think it's about figuring out like, you know, what that looks like for you and like, you know, making sure you are giving your all, but also taking some for yourself as well. You can't give until your own cup is full. Yes. Love it. Um, okay. So we're going to get into your next venture. So you recently exited Create and Cultivate to begin New Money Ventures, a $20 million consumer fund and brand studio focused on empowering the next generation of entrepreneurs. Your tagline is money meets mentorship. And I love, love that. So Growing a company and seeing it develop and go through so many different stages is practically like having a child. I mean, I don't have children, but I feel like it's practically like having a child. Um, so moving away from creating Cultivate couldn't have been easy. Could you talk a little bit about how you know when it's time to move on and move forward to the next thing? Yeah, totally. So I'm still the founder of Create and Cultivate. I'm still on the board. I'm still involved. I'm just no longer the CEO. And what that really means and, and, and why that sort of happened was, you know, I had been the CEO of Create and Cultivate for over 10 years. And I mean, that's a long time. And basically, you know, what I realized was, you know, especially after, you know, we sold to private equity. Now we have like venture, we have like money coming into the company, which is amazing for like high growth and high volume. I realized that, you know, looking at one, the way the world is changing, post-COVID digital integrations, large scale, all of these different things, like investors in your ear, all these different types of things that come with the nuances of scaling, growing, and building a company um, was not my expertise per se. Like I love managing teams, but I've only managed teams up to 30 people. When you get to a company of a hundred people, that's a very different skill set. Um, and I've never run a venture back company. So dealing with investors and having a whole set of people that you have to answer to, again, not a skill set I currently had. And with the way Creighton Cultivate was and the success and trajectory it was on, I knew I needed to bring in some fresh blood as a CEO to come in who also had experience in the things that I didn't. Um, and so we brought on Kate Spees, who's the new CEO of Creighton Cultivate, um, earlier this year. And, you know, it took about six months to find a CEO that I felt had the qualifications, the mindset, the culture, you know, everything behind her to kind of be successful. And, um, it's been really awesome. You know, I think like beyond that we're friends and it's nice because I feel like we have a, you know, mutual respect for each other as leaders, but also, you know, I'm a support system for her. I obviously, I always joke. I know where all the bodies are buried because like I built the business. So like, <laughs> I probably know where that file is and you know, it's, it's things like that, but I'm so excited because this is a completely different, another level of the business and the new phase it's going into. And it's been really fun to watch and honestly learn from her as well. But yeah, it's weird. It's weird to wake up and not do the same thing you've done for 10 years. You know, it's, it's strange to get into a category where you've never done it before. Like I have been an angel investor for a long time, investing in female led businesses, but personally, and, and usually with friends and to get into the venture game where you have your own investors that have invested, you know, $20 million into your fund. They're relying on you on making a return, having to really vet out these companies and really see the potential and the problems of what those companies could endure over the next one, three, five years. Um, but on the flip side, it's been really fun. You know, I have a really strong pipeline and access to amazing women doing really cool things. Um, and now I have the ability to help them not only with advice and mentorship, but with cash, which we all know is extremely important given that only 2% of VC funding goes to women, um, which is really a devastating stat. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And you've invested in some of our favorite companies that are changing the world and so many companies that we use daily, like Maya Way Suitcase or Gaia um, or The Frame Reformer, which if you're a greenish OG, you remember our episode with Melissa Bentivoglio, um, the founder and one of your dear friends. So shout out, Melissa. We love you. <laughs> and you just mentioned um, like women receive under 2% of VC funding. To you, what are the mental blocks with investing? I worked in private wealth this past summer and one of the um, leaders at the firm and I were discussing how a big block for women investing is the fact that they feel like they need to know all of the information before they do something. Like they need to know how they solve a math problem before they raise their hand or like have this confirmation that there's no gaps in their knowledge. And this might go back to, you know, kind of like a perfectionism perspective and it's a generalization, but men I think are very different. They're willing to take more risks as a whole. What's your take on this and how do we change the paradigm? Yeah, well, there's different types of investing too, right? So angel investing is inherently risky. Um, you know, you are basically, I liken it to like investing in crypto. Like you don't really know what's going to happen, right? You're investing in that founder, that person, that idea. Um, and usually it's early stage. So it's early days. So it's not like someone's asking you to invest in a way when away is a billion dollar business. And you're like, yes, take my money. It's, <laughs> you're at like a juice shop and your friend's like, I think I'm gonna start a luggage company. And you're like, let me write you a check. So those are really those investments that pay off long term, but it's one in a hundred and a million, who knows, you know, we can count the number of unicorns on our hands. So I think it's just important to know it is risky, but it does give you skin in the game for an opportunity where you could make a lot of money depending on the opportunity and, you know, the way you kind of go about it. You know, the other way of investing is obviously in like the stock market and like thinking about your portfolio mix and how you're increasing your wealth over time and making your money work for you. I think, you know, we as women like don't often get educated on these types of things because you're just like, work hard, make money, put it in the bank, save, and then, you know, maybe buy a house one day. And like, that's the mentality we've had for a long time versus like diversifying out your portfolio to create, uh, you know, long-term wealth for yourself, especially at a young age. Um, So I think it's just been really important. I've been lucky, you know, my mom is in accounting. She's been like a a financial person for a long time. So she, you know, runs all the businesses for my dad and like they work together as partners. But like, I feel like she's been a major help for me um, when launching a business. Like when you that first year you think you've made so much money and then you realize all the taxes you owe, you're like, wait, what? Um, and so that's always shocking as well. And so I think it's just important to, um, you have to be somewhat risky and willing to risk it for the long term. And I think it's, it's really just about understanding what you need to live, what you need to survive, what you need for the long term, and not risking that side of it, risking anything excess. And it doesn't have to be massive amounts of money. It can be little amounts of money that create larger amounts of money over time. I've worked for two VC funds in the past that invest in female founders, and I'm really passionate about this. Um, and also some startups that really informed that passion because I saw the other side of the business. Like I saw how they made decisions, how they led a team, and wanted to see like who's backing that mission, who's backing that purpose, and not just with finance, like you said, but a network and resources that they need to succeed. Um, one of them was Halogen Ventures based in LA and the other was The Helm. Um, and I know when I was there, it took me a second to get all the terms and concepts down. For our listeners, just a super brief overview of the terms we need to know would be so helpful. Like Series A, Series B, you mentioned Unicorn. Like if we're in a VC class on our college campus or maybe down the road, like pitching to an investor, what can we know? Yeah. So basically, and and it's like changing all the time. So I will preface it by saying that. But basically, when you're taking on venture capital, you're essentially getting money in exchange for equity in your business. Um, And the stages of your business are important to the stages of which your company is growing. So you have now you have pre-seed, Seed, Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D, and then eventually you can go public. Um, So a seed stage company is at the very beginning of launching their business. They might have some revenue, um, but they're pretty new in the game. Um, and they're using this money as like a seed to then plant and then grow their business. Like that's sort of where it comes from. Um, and the amount that you're raising isn't really, doesn't really 
a matter based on the stage. It matters on the company and the economics. Um, a Series A raise is usually when you're much more established. You have proven track record. You have you know market product market fit, um, and then oftentimes you will with that raise create a board for your business um, and have people that obviously are helping oversee and inform and guide that business as well. Um, and then as you get into Series B, Series C, Series D, I mean they're all kind of the same. It's just again that growth, that extreme growth that you're experiencing. Um, and when you're going to raise venture capital, it's really about understanding the use of funds. And the use of funds is what you are using the funds for. It feels fairly obvious, but you know, the, everything ties back to a mathematical equation, right? So if I'm, you know, raising $2 million um, for my company, I need to know where that $2 million is going to. Is it staff? Is it product development? Is it inventory? Is it marketing? And how long that $2 million will get me in my company? It's going to last one year, two years, three years, et cetera. And then you want to start thinking about um, you know, your risk of running out of cash. So if you're forecasting your $2 million is going to make you $6 million, you might be making $4 million a year. And then that way you don't need to like raise any more money and you can just keep reinvesting. But if it's only going to get you so far and you maybe are just going to break even, you're going to have to keep um, raising money. And so it just depends on the type of business that you want to run and how you're going to structure it. But there's a lot of terminology. So like you have like your TAM, the total addressable market that you're looking at. You have your CAC, your you know customer acquisition costs, um, all of these sort of um, acronyms that you can just look up online, but they're essentially just the cost of doing business, the cost of acquiring customers um, and the, co- the actual total addressable market that you're reaching. So if you're trying to build a business, you want to know how many people are going to want to buy this product. Where is the need and want? So doing that research is key. You're also the founder of something new. Drumroll, please. May Wines. May is your new female-led California wine company changing the typical format for wine consumption by drinking with a modern single service thesis to suit consumers' moderated drinking habits in 2022 and beyond. I think the coolest part is that it's single serving. I think I need that and a lot of people need that. (laughs) And you started it with your work wife turned business partner, Neha Kumar. Yes. You're launching in two weeks, but by the time this episode's out, it will be out. So listeners, go try it. And we also want to know how you came up with the idea, finding the gap in the market. And as always, we'd love to ask how you came up with the name. We came up with the concept. So I love wine. I've obviously always loved wine. It's It's been really fun. And, and during COVID, it became like a really amazing passion because I started taking online sommelier classes with one of my friends, me, Marie Hart. And we started kind of diving into the nuances of wine, learning a ton about it, about the business, et cetera. Um, and it's just been, always been a real passion of mine. Basically, also during COVID, I feel like most people, I drank a lot of wine. Um, I was drinking like a bottle a night some nights. Obviously, we thought the world was ending. So many things were happening. But getting back to, you know, the normalcy of life and realizing like, you know, moderation is tough sometimes. And when you open a bottle of wine, at least for me, if I have one glass on like a Monday night, I either feel guilty that I opened the bottle and have like more than one glass and have a headache the next day and kind of regret it. Or I leave it in the back of my fridge. I go out to dinner the next night. I kind of forget about it. And then I, a few days later, I'm like, oh, this isn't as good. And then I like banish it to, you know, cooking wine or just, you know, throwing it out altogether. And this was something that I kind of was chatting with a lot of women about because I was like, I was like, I don't know. I always just feel like I'm wasting good wine. Like I join all these wine clubs. I'm spending money on it. And then like, I end up pouring it out. Like, does anyone else feel that? And like, Everyone related to this message was really interesting. So then for New Money Ventures, I became obsessed with investing in a wine company. I was like, I really want to invest in a wine business, especially a women-owned wine business. And I met with a ton of entrepreneurs and like people in the wine industry and basically found like, um, one, everything was either extremely had extremely high valuations and was doing really well and was maybe too big for us to invest. Or on the single serve side, everything was canned. And while there's nothing wrong with canned wine, I just didn't feel like the experience was as elevated. I never really liked the flavor as much. Um, And so I couldn't really get behind it, but I loved the idea behind it. And so basically, I started thinking about what I basically thought about with Create and Cultivate. Like, what's the problem here to solve, right? One is I don't feel like there's a wine company out there that feels extremely accessible, really fun. Most wine companies feel like slightly snobby, a little like, you know, um, 
little like, you know, too good, too cool for school. And like, you can't be here unless you're a wine snob. And like, I just don't like that, you know, feeling around wine. Cause I think it's just such a fun, cool, cultural, um, drink that, you know, brings so many people together. So like, why not make learning about wine easier, you know, especially having taken now all these SOM courses. Um, so that's like number one, number two was like, is there a good single serve option that isn't canned? Um, and then we came up with the may mini bottle. So essentially a bottle of may is a one glass serving. So it's a glass bottle, fully recyclable. Um, and basically our whole tagline is a taste without the waste. So you get your glass, you feel good about it, and then you don't have to worry about pouring out a bottle. Or if you're hosting a group of your friends and someone drinks red or rosé and you drink white, like it's easy to divvy it up and not feel like you're wasting a ton of wine that no one's going to drink. So that's how we came up with the concept. Um, the name was came from this idea of we kept going through more taglines that we like of like, what is the problem? And the one that kept coming up was moderation made easy. Um, and we kept kind of saying that, like, how do we make moderation easy? And the word may kind of kept coming up. And we love the idea of hosting um, a May Day festival and doing events in May around the product launch. It really lent itself to that kind of fun verbiage of like, may all your dreams come true. And so we have really fun swag um, with a lot of different sayings on it. So that's kind of how we came up with the word. And then it took on a life of its own um, after putting together the brand, which our inspiration was Wes Anderson meets French Riviera. So it's a really fun. Stop. That is iconic. It's really fun. It's a really cool brand. I feel like it's unlike anything that's out there in the wine space. It really just lends itself to having a good time. And, um, you know, obviously all taste, no waste it's about not wasting the wine, but also we ship everything in FSC certified, um, recyclable and sustainable packaging, which is really exciting. And then we also are doing a give back component for all of our 12 packs. So, um, you know, I'm on the board of half the story, which is an amazing 501c3, um, that focuses on, um, uh, digital well-being for uh, young people. Basically, you know, we all are on Instagram and TikTok and all these things, and the world looks very shiny and pretty, and everyone looks like they're a billionaire and living their best life. But the realities of you know what the real world is obviously can be very dark, and especially for young people with suicide rates increasing, and um, you know more and more women, young women get having eating disorders. Uh, what half the story is doing is really focusing on creating a more healthy, um, sustainable uh, relationship for young people with social media. For all of our listeners, in case you're new here, our episodes will always start and end the same. So just like you already heard us talk about Jacqueline's roots at the beginning of this episode, we'll end by talking about guest experiences during the most influential and outright crazy time in their life, their 20s. Since our listenership is primarily college students and those in their early careers, we want to center this last segment on them. And because those years tend to fly by, this is also more of a speed round with questions. Jacqueline, are you ready? Let's do it. Okay, we'll hit the ground running on this first question. So if you had to do it all over again, would you change anything about your journey? Oh, no, no regrets. How do you pair your May wine, your favorite TV show, a charcuterie board? Uh, I mean, all the cheese all the time, I would say. Definitely, I would say with a a cheese board and probably a cheesy TV show, honestly. (laughs) Something I love about you is that you really motivate me to want to learn as much as I possibly can about every single topic. And you've never had the philosophy that I think a lot of people, especially women have, that's like, oh, I don't have experience in that area or no, I'm not good enough. Kind of some of the stuff we were talking about before Um, and the thoughts that come in your head through patterns and imposter syndrome and all of that stuff. So how do you encourage people to never be scared of learning, you know, to dip their toes in the deep end instead of waiting for that perfect moment? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have two different sayings. One is say yes and figure it out. Um, and the other is just 80% it. Like nothing needs to be perfect. Just get it out in the world and iterate from there. So we spoke about your philosophy when investing in businesses, but how do you invest in yourself? What are some of your practices that make you the best Jacqueline that you can be? Is it dry brushing, morning walk, talking to yourself in the mirror every morning? I love it. I mean, I probably should dry brush brush more, but I feel like for me lately, it's been gardening. Like I really love gardening. Um, and I, every morning I kind of go out and before the craziness of emails and calls and stuff, and I'll just check on the garden. And that's been really fun very rewarding. Tips to glow with confidence while public speaking. 
Ooh. Um, yes. I think like the when you're doing public speaking, I think the best way to sort of think about it is think about speaking in sound bites. Like I, I always, it's very easy to get off topic and like wind on and all these things. But I think sometimes if you start like practicing little sound bites in advance, it helps with the ease of like knowing how to answer questions. What is one book that everyone needs to read? I mean, work party, obviously. <laughs> my book. I love that book. But, um, shameless plug. Shameless plug. I mean, I would say that one and, um, uh, oh God, I'm like totally, uh, Radical Transparency. Ari and I both love LA. What's your favorite Los Angeles spot? We're so curious. Ooh, oh my God. I mean, there's so many. It's tough and I feel like they're always changing. But from like a restaurant perspective... I would say Bavel downtown is really delicious. It's like some of my favorite food, B-A-V-E-L. Okay, so you are currently speaking directly to the next generation right now. What is something that our generation needs to know? It could be about the future of business, the world of health, advice for aspiring female entrepreneurs, et cetera. I would say, you know, take the risks. And the reality is, is like one thing I learned along the way that I always thought was kind of shocking is like, I've met with a lot of really powerful, really smart people who've done amazing things. And the majority of them had no idea what they were doing. So you can't be scared to go after what you want because the reality is everyone's just figuring it out. So it's really just about being a problem solver, being a pleasure to work with and taking the risk. We end every episode with the greenish goal. What is one goal you recommend our listeners set from mental health to founding a company to mastering your wealth? Ooh, I would definitely say start figuring out a way to save money um, and have a emergency fund. I think that is something that a lot of people learn the hard way in 2020 and building wealth for yourself is it is self-care, you know, over time. Again, just it can be a small amount that adds up to a big amount, but putting something away for a rainy day is always a good idea. Jacqueline, we loved this conversation. We love speaking with you. Yes, thank you so much for your time. This was so fun and we had such a great time. Oh, of course. Awesome. And if any of your listeners want to buy some May, you can go to drinkmay.com and uh, use promo code podcast10 for 10% off. Yay. You heard it here first, guys. Well, thank you so much again, Jacqueline. Of course. Thanks, ladies. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. You can find anything we mentioned today linked in our show notes. And if you want more, go to our website at www.agreenishlife.com. We'll see you next time on Greenish. Greenish.